And this week, we, of course, um, are continuing our look at what it means to build for God's kingdom. And before we dive into the scripture passage, which is going to be in the Gospel of John, I I want to let you know what's kind of happening, because it can be a little difficult to understand the context. What's happening is this is just a, a short amount of time, hours before Jesus is going to be arrested. And so he realizes that soon he will be absent um, and that it will be up to the disciples to further his mission, to continue to go out and to tell people why Jesus was there in order to, to come and to reveal the love that Jesus had for the world, as John 3.16 always or says so clearly. And so he's there over the last few chapters of John. He gives what's called a farewell discourse, which is he's telling the disciples, trying to catch them up. Okay, and here's this and here's what's happening as quickly as possible. And then towards the end of that, he says a prayer. He prays to God, his father, and and that's where we come into this. This is a prayer that Jesus is having with God, though they're within earshot of the rest of the disciples. Which brings us then to John 17, verses 20 through 23. So hear these words. Jesus is praying. He says, I ask not only on behalf of these disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let us pray. God, we gather this morning in celebration of who you are and what you have done in this world. We know, Lord, that you have called us as individuals, but also as a community to witness to who you are, to what you have done, And also to be a witness, Lord, of what is coming in your kingdom. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So you can imagine uh, what's going on in Jesus' mind and his heart as he's saying this prayer, not only, of course, is he thinking about himself and, 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 and what's going to come and the, the crucifixion and all of those things. But, of course, he's also looking around and he is in full awareness that it is the disciples who are ultimately going to go out and to spread this word about who he is and what he has done. My guess is that perhaps at some point, maybe he didn't, if I were Jesus, and I'm not, in case you were curious, if I were I would be somewhat concerned, right? As you look around the disciples, I would have a bit of fear and trepidation. So it should be little wonder that he is praying. Probably from the tips of his toes to the top of his head, he is praying. And one of the things that he's praying, of course, is that they will be a witness to him by the words that they speak. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about that reality is the fact that not only is he praying 
just for those disciples who are right there. But he's also, it seems at least, that he is praying for those who aren't yet there, but who will one day be his disciples. Hear what he says. He says, I ask not only on behalf of these disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, Jesus seems to be praying, not just for the disciples there, but for all, including for you and for me. There is this sense that Jesus in this moment, in this powerful prayer, is praying also for us. And one of the things that he's praying for is that we will be able to have the words to give witness to who he is. One commentator has pointed out how intriguing it is, if you think about this, the fact that someone's words told you about Jesus. And whoever that was, someone else told that person. And whoever that was, someone else told that person. And if you could go on spiritualancestry.com, look it up. It's amazing. I have no idea what it is. So if it's something bad, I apologize. But if you go there, um, I'm just think about that. If you were to trace it back, it would trace all the way back to this particular conversation, to this particular prayer. And it reminds me of this reality, something that we've talked about when it comes to building for God's kingdom, which is that so often it happens in those one-on-one kinds of conversations, right? Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a pastor. Oftentimes it's a pastor or a parent to a child or a grandparent. Maybe it's a friend to a friend. But someone's words who have passed along the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, And there's also this great reminder that words actually are important. Now, I love a particular quote that my guess is most of us are probably familiar with. It's usually attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Who knows if that's really what it is? But it's those words that say, preach the gospel always, use words when necessary. And I like what it's trying to say, which is this sense that you can't just have words. You have to actually have deeds that back up those words. But sometimes we perhaps allow that to, 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 to kind of taint our image of the gospel. Here's the thing, about 98% of the time, for people to really know who Jesus is and the difference it makes, it actually takes words. And so it's this reminder to us of our own call to be a people who speak the words of the gospel, who let others know about the love of Jesus. Now, That's not the only way that we're called to be a witness. In fact, the most of this passage actually looks to something else, which is this. Jesus is praying that the community will be so unified and that they will be one. And what Jesus says is that when they are one, then it will point to who Jesus is. In other words, yes, we need to speak these words, but if we speak these words and meanwhile the community of Christ is disheveled and is torn apart and everyone hates each other, well then probably the words are not going to be that effective, are they? And so what Jesus is saying here is that we We have to be one. In Luke 13, 
we see that Jesus understands that this is what the coming kingdom is going to look like. I oftentimes will say that at communion, Luke 13, that says they will come from the north and from the south, from the east and the west. And they will do what? They will gather around the table in God's kingdom. In other words, what we are aiming for is a community that comes from all places and is able to be unified together. And if we want to build for God's kingdom... We will be able to do so only if we are a community that is genuinely unified. That is one. Now, the tendency of us good Christian folk is this. That as soon as we hear something like that, okay, we need to be unified. We need to be one. Let's go do this. Let's get along. Everyone, love each other. Come on. Let's sing kumbaya. Let's come together. We can do this. And our desire oftentimes is to do this out of our own energy and strength. But that's about as effective as when we tell our children, you know, after a fight to go and hug each other, right? And they go hug each other. And then we turn our backs. And about two seconds later, one of them has a headlock. One of them, the other one's in a headlock, right? The time between a hug and a headlock is like this, if you're curious, right? And so we can do that and say, okay, let's do this. We're going to love each other. And then we start doing that. And all of a sudden, someone's going to start annoying us. And we are going to completely forget. And so the foundation, we have to remember the foundation of a unified community is this. And we see this here in this passage is that it will only happen, only happen by the power and through the strength of God. Now, how do we know that that's the case? We know it's the case because of the fact that Jesus, Jesus, let me remind you, this is not one of the disciples, this is Jesus himself is doing what? He is praying to his father, God, please help them to be one. Prayer is always, as I've said many times, is always a sign that we are dependent upon God to bring something forth. It's the same thing that we've said from the beginning about building for God's kingdom, which is that Jesus said that prayer, this is how you pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It will always start with community or start with God. So here's the thing. If you want a unified community, it will not begin by singing kumbaya or by hugging someone. It will begin when we pray to Almighty God to bring us unity in our community. That is where it begins, always with a sense of prayer and knowing it is only through the power of God. Now, there's a second part to this that we have to be mindful of, which is this. This is something I would suggest, especially we as Protestants and we as good American individuals may not be quite as comfortable with. But it's this, that what Jesus understands the community to be is that the more that the community is unified, the more that they are in God. In fact, Jesus says that the way that they should be unified should look very much the same as the way in which Jesus and God the Father were unified. That's really, really Close, right? What does Jesus say? As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. May they be one as we are one. What that means 
is that community is not this nice little heartwarming, cozy kind of thing that we can try to do. What it means is that it is to be who we continue to become and who we are in God. In other words, if we are unified as a community, it will help us to be unified in God. And if we are not unified as a community, then we will struggle in our relationship with God. I know that may make people uncomfortable, but most of us probably have some experience with that. If you have been a part of a community, this one or another community, that has struggled with being fractured at times and wrestled with that, inevitably, it brings much deep pain. And a part of the reason why the pain is so great is because of the simple fact. It is not just a broken, it's not just a diminishing of relationship with others. It is also because many times then we also begin to wrestle with God. And our relationship with God is affected by how we relate to one another. And the more unified that we are as one, the more we will be found in the triune God. And so one of the things then that we have to understand, first and foremost, only God can do this. And then secondly, the stronger we are together as a community, the stronger we will be in who Christ is. There is this intimate and integrate, and, and in, is integrate, is that right? Just say yes. Thank you, Brian. A relationship between how unified we are and how unified God is. The question then is what role then do we have? Well, if we begin with prayer and if we begin by understanding more and more what it means, the, the, how important and critical community is, then we begin to see, it seems to me, how we can cultivate community together, a community that is a witness to who Christ is and to the kingdom that is to come. So how do we do that? Well, one of the ways we do it, of course, is by reflecting the, who Christ is, which means reflecting his grace. I want you to hear this. Maybe you'll say, well, yeah, we know that's kind of true, but I want you to hear this well. In order for a community to be truly unified and to be one, it is going to take an abundance of grace toward one another. I want you to think about this particular scene. Act like it's there on the screen. It's not on the screen, but act like you're watching a movie and you see Jesus and he is praying. Oh, he is praying from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Please, God, please bring unity. Help us to be one. And all of a sudden, there's a split screen. And at the same time that Jesus is saying, please help them to be one, there is Judas and he is there getting some cash for doing what? For betraying the one who has been in charge of this community for three years. There's Jesus. Are you following? There's Jesus praying, please help us to be one. Help the community to be one. And there is Jesus betraying him. And then let's just say that the screen is split one more time. And it says at the bottom, two hours later. And there's Peter. And what is Peter doing? A part of the community. Acting as if he's never known Jesus. And then let's just split that screen one more time. And guess what you see? 
You see the other disciples and what are they doing? They are running as fast as they can to get as far away from Jesus and all the other community as is humanly possible. You see the irony of this prayer as he is praying for this unity. Everyone else is getting out as quickly as they can. Now, this is a phenomenal scene for two reasons. One, it is a great relief to pastors all across the world. Because if Jesus himself struggled with having a community be unified, then why in the world should we not, right? That doesn't matter to you, but it matters to me. It relieves some pressure. But secondly, here's what you have to see. Days later, what is Jesus doing? He's literally walking through walls and he's cooking breakfast. For whom? The disciples, the ones who just days earlier were trying to do what? They were trying to run away from him as, as, as fast as they could. And what was Jesus doing? When he met with them, he was offering them grace. He was offering them forgiveness. What Jesus understood, Jesus himself, is that the only way for community to actually really be able to be unified is for him, first and foremost, to be able to have grace upon them and to not hold that over their heads. The only way for us to have a unified community, it will always require an abundance of grace. It is with some regularity that I meet with disciples of Jesus Christ and they are oftentimes, they may are having some kind of dispute. Maybe it's a familial dispute. Maybe it's a theological dispute. It could be almost anything. And pretty much every time I meet with them, one of the things I say to them is this, the only way that you will be able to stay in some sort of unity with this person in the midst of disagreement is if you, if both parties have an abundance of grace towards one another. There is no healthy marriage if both sides do not have an abundant amount of grace. There is no good parent-child relationship if there is not an abundance of grace. There is no good friendship if there is not abundance of grace. And there will be no unified church if there is not an abundance of grace. We always want the other person to have grace towards us, but we oftentimes struggle. And why do we struggle? Because it is a sacrifice to have grace for others. But let me remind you what Jesus did. Did he sacrifice for us? Yes, as an act of absolute grace. And in order to be community, we have to do more than just want to get along. We have to be willing to take the sacrifices, to make the sacrifices, to have grace in order to genuinely be in unified community. It will not just happen. Now, why do we need to have grace towards one another? Because, thank you for asking, because we are a bunch of incredibly imperfect and sinful people. I mean, if we weren't, we wouldn't need grace. And one of the things, one of the great dividers of community is when you come into a Christian community and you expect perfection. 
You are thinking it's going to be nothing but unicorns and rainbows and that everyone is just going to get along swimmingly and they're all going to agree. And that's how you find perfect Christian community. And that will cause a community to crumble faster than perhaps almost anything else. It is our false expectations that the Christian community is going to be a perfect community. And of course, who speaks better to this uh, than, than Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his book, Life Together? I didn't want to use Dietrich Bonhoeffer because that's always the thing that pastors use. They always talk about life together and it's almost cliche now. But here's the thing. There's nothing better. And I want you to hear what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about community. Here's what he says. Innumerable times. A whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. That's the unicorns and rainbows. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace, hear that, speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that it is grace to be disillusioned by other Christians. I want you to look at the person next to you and say, thank you for being God's grace. Which means you are disillusioned with that person. Now why, why would that be grace? That seems odd. I was thinking about that and I was reminded of Eugene Peterson. I've been using a lot of Eugene Peterson lately. He passed away recently. Maybe that's why. It's also, uh, as I said before, because he's a Presbyterian pastor, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat drawn to him. But early in his time as a pastor, Eugene Peterson uh, it remarks about what it was like. And one of the things he says that he was struck by it was not what he had expected. It was not a part of his wish dream for the church that he was going to lead. Is that he discovered both literally and figuratively that people were yawning. And it began to disillusion him. What he said was this on a Sunday morning. What he discovered is that Matt Erickson went to sleep every Sunday. Oh, we notice who you are. Make no question about it. I will try not to look at you right now, though you won't know because you're sleeping. <laughs> Erickson, he says, he always made it through the first hymn, but 10 minutes later was sound asleep. Red Belton, an angry teenager, sat on the back pew out of sight of his parents and read comic books. Carl Strothheim, a bass in the choir, passed notes, supplemented by whispers to Luther Olson on stock market tips. One woman, Peterson says, gave me hope. She brought a stenographic notebook with her every Sunday and wrote down in shorthand everything I said. At least one person was paying attention. Then I learned 
that she was getting ready to leave her husband and was using the hour of worship to practice her shorthand so that she could get a self-supporting job. What you should know is that a good pastor is almost always, towards the beginning of his or her career, going to be disillusioned by the congregation that they are serving. I want you to know, you all have disillusioned me at times. Where's the grace in that? Why would that be a grace? Well, one of the reasons, of course, is it's the simple fact that When we come in as pastors, we think, okay, everyone's just going to really want to follow Jesus and they're going to be so gung-ho and this is going to be great. And so when we get here, it's going to be really kind of easy. And we're just going to say, hey, let's go this way because Jesus wants us to do that. And they're all going to do that. Nobody's going to be sleeping. There's going to be no uh, marital difficulties. Everyone's going to be energetic and they're all going to love Jesus. And what you begin to realize all of a sudden is that you are not the Messiah. And it is always a grace for a pastor to understand early on that he or she is not the Messiah and that the people they serve, and they're going to be struggling. And when they struggle, guess what it forces us pastors to do? To pray. And that is grace. To pray realizing that you all are not pawns for us as pastors. Because oftentimes what happens is pastors think, oh, we know what God wants us to do and it's whatever I want to do. And when that doesn't happen and people say, no, 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 we don't think that that's right. Or when people don't seem interested, all of a sudden we are forced to depend upon God more. And that is incredibly good. Now, here's another thing that happens. Which is that with pastors, oftentimes when they come into a place, they think they have to be perfect And when they discover the congregation is not perfect, it relieves a lot of pressure. And they realize, wait, you know what? We're going to journey together in this. And it's not one person saying, I'm just going to tell you all what to do. And so pastors, good pastors, I would suggest, are frequently disillusioned by the community of which they are a part. Now, here's the flip side. And I know some of you are already thinking it. Congregations, then, are oftentimes supposed to be or should be disillusioned by their pastors. You are welcome. (laughs) There is no question that pastors should disillusion their congregation. I was was thinking about that. I was remembering, you don't have to raise your hand, a year or two ago. And when I told the story about how I was there at that turning light, right, or at the, at the light here in Michigan 116th, and, and that guy, as I turned left onto Sycamore, wouldn't let me merge. Remember that story, perhaps? And once we got to the light there at Main Street, I, you know, got out of my car. Uh, it was an act of justice, it felt like to me, to, 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 to let him know that I did not appreciate the fact that he did not let me merge. And I know this. Because I hear rumblings, oh, I always do, that there were those in our midst who said, mm, Jerry should not have been that honest about that. He should not have told us that. And I want you to know this. I told you that with great intentionality. Because I, and I genuinely mean this, I need you all at times to be disillusioned with me. I need us at times to disagree. You know what? This is a quick aside. You know who really needs that? My children need that. Because if you all think that I am perfect in any way, then it is going to cause friction because my children know that I am not. And if you are sitting there saying, oh, that Joe, your dad, he's just so great, he's wonderful, they are going to know that is not the dad that they know. 
And so a part of the problem, a part of the issue is that you need to be disillusioned because if not, there will come a time and it almost always comes when you will be disappointed with your pastor. With Scott, that's even harder to do, quite frankly, or with me, much easier to do. And if you think that this community is based on your pastor being really pretty much perfect, then the, congr- the community is going to crumble and dissolve. There is no question about that. Not only that, here's the thing. People want the pastor to be perfect because then they think in some way, well, then you have a special dispensation. And, and, and really, it's just the pastor that really needs to further the kingdom of God because he or she is very special. But do you notice that when Jesus was praying, he was not praying for pastors to be witnesses to him. He was praying for everyone. And you realize if it's up to Jerry to do this, we are in trouble. It is up to all of us. It is a grace to be disillusioned. Because then what you begin to do is you begin to see, okay, Rather than trying to wait for the perfect community, we're going to take this community that we have that is imperfect and we are going to further God's mission with this incredibly imperfect community. Again, one of the things that Eugene Peterson says is this. If you, want a, if you are trying to have this perfect community, one of two things hap- will happen. It's the, it's, it's, it's the same coin, two sides, same coin, which is this. You will either have a community that is incredibly judgmental and is angry as they try to root out every inconsistency and every sin that is humanly possible, or you will have a community that is shiny and glossy but has no depth as everyone tries to pretend that everything is great. Do you know what that is? Both of those things, I want you to hear me. That is the society in which we live right now, which is a society that is both incredibly divided, but is also hyper judgmental. I know churches are oftentimes said, oh, you guys are too judgmental. I'm telling you, society's catching up really fast. Because man, the anger with which people point out other sins is a clear sign that they think that they are perfect. Make no question about that. And in the same way, the way in which oftentimes we try to let off the shiny, glossy side as if everything is perfect and wonderful is also clearly not true, but an attempt to reveal that we are perfect in some way. And think about what a community who says we are imperfect, that's not an excuse to not try to be shaped more like Jesus, but it is saying we are going to be honest about the fact that we are imperfect, that we do not always disagree, but we are also going to be a community who is unified around who Jesus Christ is. And it is that kind of community that will be a witness to who Jesus Christ is and to the kingdom that is to come. But now let me also close with this, which is that just because of the fact that we are imperfect, it does not mean that any of our jobs is to sit there and look and try to find every single imperfection we can. Because one of the other things that oftentimes will cause community to begin to become fractured is when we begin to find and are ungrateful for the community that we are actually a part of and are only able to see those things that are sinful or broken. 
Christine Pohl wrote this great book on community as well, and I want you to hear what she says. She says this, while, it, while gratitude gives life to communities, ingratitude that has become established sucks out every good until life itself shrivels and discouragement and discontent take over. Here's what I want you to be aware of. That oftentimes, what makes for unified community is not necessarily even the community itself, but what cultivates it is the lens through which we see that community. And when we begin to see only struggle, when we begin to only see the brokenness, then inevitably, you will begin to be a part of what fractures the community. Let me, uh, let me tell you this from my experience. And I want to be very careful with what I say here. So, so please hear me. I know that there are times when people need to leave churches. I get that. When I was a kid, we left the church. I think it was the right thing to do. I want you to hear me. But I also want to tell you an experience that I have seen several times, which is this. A church member or church family will begin to see something. One thing that is kind of wrong with the church And I have seen this happen, and it's fascinating. You begin to watch, and several months later, in my experience, it takes about a year. And they will have a great litany of things that are wrong with this, and it becomes this, it's no longer my, this church. And in those few times when they will come in and they will talk to me about it, they will say, look, do you see this list? Now, I don't say this, but I want to say this, which is, are you kidding me? You have missed a lot of things. Because there's a lot more things wrong with this church than that. I don't. But my point is this. That inevitably you are going to find things. And if your desire is to find brokenness and sin in this particular community, I want you to know, come talk to me. I will point out many things. Starting with me. But if we can begin to be grateful for the things, the ways in which we are shaping people like Jesus, for the ways in which we are building for God's kingdom, without acting as if we have no struggles or there is no brokenness. No, no, no. We have to continue to be honest about that. Then we will begin to form more and more and better and better community. I'll just tell you real quickly this joke. I hate telling jokes. But it's a funny, it's a, I think it's kind of decently funny. Butch West at second half gave it and it reminded me of it. I, I never like to give accolades to his cheesy jokes, but I will anyways. <laughs> and again, my guess is you've heard this joke, which is, which is that there's a man who's stranded on an island and, and, and he's been there for many years. And then finally a ship comes by, he sends off smoke signals, they find him, they bring him up on the boat. And as they're looking out, they look out and they see three huts and they say, well, what are, what are those, you know, what, what are those huts? He says, oh, that one, that one's my house. Well, what's the, and the other one, that one's, that one's where I worship. And then the captain of the ship said, well, what's the third one? Oh, that's where I used to worship. <laughs> the headwinds against being a unified community are incredibly strong. Our culture is going to continue to cultivate individualism. You should be able to have this your way right away. We've talked about this a lot. And so we have to continually talk about what it means to be a unified community. Why? Because you are going to continue to hear as you leave this place without question how you can be the best you without thinking about how we can be the best we. 
So I want to encourage us. Go out and pray. Whether you think we have a unified community or not, keep praying because it is only God who will make us unified. Realize that our relationship with Christ is strengthened as we are unified together in Christ. Have grace. Be willing to have an abundance of grace for one another. Don't be afraid to know that we are not perfect. Don't be afraid to be disillusioned. It happens to all of us. And then look for ways that you see Christ at work. Develop a grateful heart. And as we do so, we will reflect the one who came in order to love the world, the one who was sacrificed and had grace for us. And we will, in a fractured society, be able to point to Jesus Christ and to the kingdom that will come when they come from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and they gather around the table. May it be so. Amen? Let's pray. God, we give you praise. For your son, Jesus Christ, for the ways, Lord, in which he showed what it is that makes for abundant community. What it means to be a witness to you. It is hard work. It takes sacrifice and an abundant amount of grace. It takes a willingness to be honest and a desire to be grateful. And I pray that you would help us to do so. Not simply, Lord, so that we can have a unified community, but so that we can be a witness to a divided world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.